This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, September 12th, the Couples Therapy Edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast Outward. I'm June Thomas, the senior managing producer of Slate Podcast. I'm Marcia Chatlin, a professor of history at Georgetown University. And I'm Nicole Perkins, writer and co-host of Thirst Aid Kit. Hi, everyone. So happy to hang out this week. We have just a quick update on some of our topics from last week. First of all, I just got an email, like a press release from SAG-AFTRA, the union that film and TV actors are in. And apparently the union is now working on developing standards and protocols for intimacy coordination, what we just talked about last week. They have a a working group, I guess, that is trying to develop policies to protect all the actors in the union and to help intimacy coordinators have sort of a standard way of interacting with productions. So I'm sure our podcast was the reason for that. (laughs) Obviously, Um, We made a, a lot of social change there. We also got a lot of good emails about our segment on Elizabeth Warren and quote-unquote electability and quote-unquote likability. One person that I'm not sure listened to the segment but just uh, sort of came out and said electability and likability are concepts that I'm not even paying attention to this election cycle. I refuse to read anything or listening to anything about them. I'm only paying attention to policies. Um, we had another listener write in, Alan. Uh, Alan said... Warren should be judged as an individual for good or ill, but virtually everyone will make a broad brush judgment about women nominees if she loses. And that would make two women in a row losing seemingly winnable elections for Democrats. And as a result, women will probably not get a chance for a long time. A much safer approach to breaking that glass ceiling would be to elect the first female vice president first and then have her run for president in 2028. That's not how it works. A lot of sighing going on around here. (laughs) Um, Alan, thank you so much for that perspective. I am not convinced that that's how we're going to get our first female president. And I bristle at the idea that women have to be vice president to be considered qualified for president, considering the presidents that we've elected in the past. Um, But that's certainly a perspective that I'm sure others share. All right. This week, we have a a lot of really good topics. First, we're going to assess the success of the Trump-related SoulCycle boycott. Then we'll review Couples Therapy, a new nine-part Showtime documentary series. And finally, we'll talk about Marianne Williamson and a new profile of her in the New York Times Magazine by Taffy Brodesser-Ackner. Nicole, want to tell us about our Slate Plus segment this week? Sure. We're going to ask, is it sexist that people seem to be more responsive to action groups like Moms Demand Action when it comes to creating change to large social illnesses like gun violence or drunk driving, things like that, um, than just having the general public be in an uproar about it? Why is it that we get action once moms and mothers and the maternal figures start um, demanding that kind of action? So. That's what we're going to look at in Slate Plus. So if you've got Slate Plus, you'll hear me identify the benevolent sexism inherent in the formulation of moms demanding things. Me complain about Walmart getting any credit whatsoever. (laughs) Me wondering if I'm going to have to find another movement. And I'll take you down a portal lined with sexism. (laughs) (laughs) If you're not a Slate Plus member yet, you should be. And you can start a free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash the waves plus. Okay, first on our docket, the SoulCycle boycott. It's been going on since the beginning of August when the Washington Post first reported that Stephen Ross, one of the owners of SoulCycle and the gym chain Equinox, was hosting a high-end Trump fundraiser. Marsha, how has that boycott gone? Well, according to a market research firm called Earnest Research, they claim there's been about a 12.5% drop in 
the number of people who are signing up for SoulCycle. And this is an imperfect science um, to see how much the boycott has impacted SoulCycle based on how many slots are open in their classes. And Equinox is also kind of hard to assess because of the nature of gym memberships. But all of this is to say that I think that this is an important story because after you peel back the layers of the celebrities involved, like Chrissy Teigen, and after the jokes about SoulCycle and Equinox being indulgent and expensive and relics of the elite, this is a great time to talk about the history of boycotting. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Consumer boycotts are so critically important. And I think the reason why this story stayed in the news as long as it did is because it exposed two things. One, the fact that Stephen Ross is part of this investment body that has money everywhere. It's in mm -hmm. Brezzi. It's in the Momofuku restaurants. It's in Ann Pizza. It's in all of these different ventures that I... Oh, I didn't know about Ann Pizza. I know. I know. It's so, it hits DC, right, yeah. where they live. But I think the fact that you have these um, investors with this really wide portfolio brings us to this question of can we ever purchase from just an independent company, how difficult that is in our day and age. And then the other part of it is the complex questions that boycotts always raise. Does it hurt the people who work there who have less privilege than the members? What does it mean for this to be the barometer and the tipping point of what companies you will support or not support when you drive a car that's using fossil fuels, right? And so I think all of these issues really shakes people at the core. But I think for me, as someone who studies this and who writes about this all the time, I always think about how as people, we feel like we have power and where our voices come from. And if we have a broken electoral system, then sometimes our role as consumers feel like our most powerful ways of making a difference, which is both sad on some <laughs> levels, but also, I mean, so critically important because I think voting with our wallets does make a difference. And I think that the way that um, SoulCycle and these other entities try to meet the challenge by saying, okay, we're going to donate to all of these causes. And like, Stephen Ross, we don't really know her. Like, there's this like, <laughs> weird kind of response um, to the fact that at the end of the day, so many businesses are aligned with this administration, even if it's not about expressed values. It's about a series of policies that are really designed for the 1% and really designed for the owner class. It also was interesting to see Ross's response because his response was to say, I support public education and environmental sustainability. Trump and I disagree on a lot of things. We just want to create jobs. It was amazing in that particular quote by Ross that he was presenting public education as a liberal cause. Right. right. It's not a liberal like it's cause. going to school. And not just like a right that people have in this country. And more of them should take up. My God. Yeah. Which probably goes to show the people he's talking to on a daily mm -hmm. basis who don't support public education as a cause. Um, but I think Trump has made it really easy to recognize that people who are making those calculations and supporting him anyway are just as bad as the people who don't disagree about his, let's say, racism or the fact that he is, you know, putting children in jail at the border. If Trump's attempts at ethnic cleansing, if you want to call it that, are a price you're willing to pay so that you and your already unconscionably rich friends can get unconscionably richer, you are just as morally bankrupt as the Trump fanboys marching around with Confederate flags. Like, it actually doesn't matter why you're doing it or how much you disagree with him if you're putting, you know, your $250,000 ahead fundraiser toward his reelection. Yeah, and I'm surprised that people are surprised the boycott worked yeah. um, just because I, you know, I've been on Twitter for a very long time and I've seen the way that boycotts and these kinds of wide moving um, discussions and, how, you know, how they impact businesses and people's lives when people kind of gather around a particular kind of cause. There's a book that's coming out. Um, I'm not sure exactly when. It's an academic book and it's coming out um, via MIT press and it's called hashtag activism and it's by sarah j jackson moya bailey and brooke foucault wells and it is about how marginalized groups use twitter to advance counter narratives preempt political spin and build diverse networks of dissent so i i'm just like why are people shocked that you know 
people use social media to gather steam for this boycott or, you know, whatever happened, because it's been there for a while now. And I'm wondering if there is a class gap, a a race gap. I don't know, like, what is there? Because obviously, young people, people of color, you know, large marginalized groups have been using boycotts for a very long time to get some sort of satisfaction. So to find out that, I don't know, upper middle class white people are not going to spin class, I guess people are really like, holy shit, this is, you know, people are actually doing something now. I I don't know why it's so surprising. Yeah. Marsha, I want to just tee you up because I am really curious because I was also shocked by by people's surprise at that. I think there's a tendency to say, oh, Twitter is just such a small group of people, Mm -hmm. uh, which everybody thinks that small group of people is a different small group of people. Mm Then there's these terms like slacktivism, virtue signaling, which makes me crazy because virtue signaling is like a way of people saying, I know that's right, but I just don't want to get involved because it, it's just signaling. I'm like, well, maybe it starts as signaling, but maybe that's actually not a bad thing to do. Yeah, like, like maybe if we all signaled a virtue, like everything would be a little more <laughs> virtuous. Exactly. So... Is this typical, Marsha, for people to be like poo-pooing and saying, oh, this is just a small group of people. This is not going to have any impact. This is and, and also to kind of disparage it as like slacktivism or virtue signaling, things like that. Well, I think it has to do with the actual product. So if you look at like the history of boycott, every boycott isn't equal because everything that's being boycotted doesn't necessarily disrupt people's lives in this way. So like if you look at the Montgomery bus boycott, African-Americans not taking a public bus system is huge, right? But that lasted more than a year. And Mm -hmm. so I think when people think about boycotts, they always wonder if they're sustainable and do they harm the most vulnerable people in the system, right? People Mm -hmm. who are dependent on wages, you know, that are based on profits. But I think the reason why this Soul Cycle thing and Equinox thing really hit this interesting nerve is because unlike other types of proposed boycotts for Trump adjacent companies like Home Depot, Equinox and SoulCycle are in parts of the country where there's a competitive market for some of the services Mm -hmm. and the types of affluent people who, um, you know, who are members of these types of gyms, there isn't a counter narrative of people who um, live in those parts of the country who would say, in support of Trump, I'm going to go to Equinox. Like that's, I think mm-hmm. that's what was different than the Home Depot protest that happened a few months earlier. And as someone who owns two rental properties, I was constantly at Home Depot. <laughs> and then once I saw that the Home Depot founder was like trying to go all in on Trump, I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta switch gears on where I'm going to buy, you know, like washers and you know, the plungers and things like that. So I think what happened in this particular boycott is because these products and services are marketed at a certain class of people, there wasn't that kind of hyper reaction of support. There was just criticizing the act of boycotting and the fact that celebrities got involved, right, made it more vulnerable. But people always underestimate, I think, consumer boycott because there is never a good indicator of people who are supporting the boycott but may not be protesting outside of stores Mm -hmm. and may not be vocalizing how they feel about it, right? And so it's very easy to say, okay, this is just a small group of people. And I think the other thing about boycotting um, that's really important is, you know, what is the good that people are willing to keep out of their life for total disruption. So soul cycle is something that you can substitute. But if we all decided as consumers to stop, you know, buying, um, I'm trying to think like, you know, put it not putting gas in our cars for just a day yeah, or like single use plastic, single use plastic, right? Like this is this becomes a little bit larger. But I think it is a reminder also to all of us to be really curious and inquisitive about the political leanings of the things that we we buy and trying to find ways around it. Yeah. What you said about, you know, who does the boycott end up harming? I thought about the recent proposal for the film industry to boycott Mm -hmm. Georgia because uh, there were a lot of actors and production companies and producers, you know, few of the big ones, I think Disney sort of made a threat, but it, it was mostly smaller actors. But, um, you know, they were saying, we film a lot of things in Georgia, and we're not going to do that if the abortion ban stands in that state. Um, meanwhile, 
there are a lot of people in Georgia who depend on that industry for their jobs, you know, either people who directly get jobs from the uh, film industry or people who work in service industry jobs that, you know, an influx of money into the economy helps support. Um, so a lot of grassroots organizations in Georgia um, that work for reproductive justice were saying, do not boycott our state. You know, the same people who are working, who are driving lifts or working at Burger King, um, you know, or, or these catering businesses are the people who need money to get abortions and they're going to need more money to, you know, or get birth control or even just support their families. Like the the legality of abortion in our state is not necessarily the number one threat to that person's autonomy. Um, so if, you know, you take away that money, you're actually not, you know, w- what does the governor care Whereas this feels like a much more targeted boycott, right? That, mm-hmm. that totally. I don't know that it's really going to hurt Stephen Ross, but it does kind of remind Stephen Ross that there that people care, that yeah. that that especially companies that I, I know in some of the stuff we read were were described as pro-social, where they kind of set themselves up as more than just a company where you can get a thing, but it's a way of life. It's not just fitness, it's life or something like that. Yeah. I think that's the equinox. <laughs> you know, it's not just it's and that gives people actually an extra connection to it, which is kind of bullshit. But I also fall for that kind of thing myself, so I can't be too hard. And so it makes people motivated when because they feel this ownership to then say, well, no, no, sir, I will not. Yeah. And it does feel like a different kind of I can take action. I will hurt this. As you said before, Marsha, you can then if you want to spin you can go to another spin option probably somebody else shitty has invested in (laughs) most of these places are run by rich people and rich people are kind of awful yeah and i think it's just um i don't know how much of a wake-up call i don't know if it's enough of a wake-up call to get them completely out of the bed but it's enough of a wake-up call that they're kind of like fumbling around and like oh (laughs) what do i need to do now you know and it reminds them that the consumer does have considerable power Mm -hmm. um you know Twelve percent, maybe not, is a, a lot when it comes to the overall memberships and who will like once the stink of all this dies down, maybe people will you know flood back and they'll recoup the people that they've lost, whatever. But it's still just a nice little reminder that anything can turn on a dime, really, and you just have to be mindful and careful or. As we've seen, most people in these positions, most uh, CEOs and founders and things like that, they just become better at hiding the money (laughs) or hiding the donations. I do want to ask, like, what do we want out of this? I guess one positive impact that this boycott could have would be Stephen Ross has less money, so he gives less money to Trump. Um, I, I personally don't think that this boycott will be enough for him to reduce his donations to Trump. Maybe he won't buy that extra yacht. Maybe he'll lay off some people, um, you know, or maybe he'll stop having fundraisers and just move all his money into super PACs uh, where he's not actually saying, you know, outwardly this I'm giving money to Trump. He's just secretly donating money to organizations that support Trump. Like where will the good of this boycott surface? I think anytime we're reminded that we have access to power, even if we feel really small or, you know, insignificant in light of all of the things that are happening politically, it's a good thing. Anytime community can be found around collective action, I think is really good. And I also think that people can be encouraged that this worked. 12.8% is not small, right? And so if it worked on this big scale with Soul Cycle and Equinox, like try it with your local schools, try it <laughs> with you know people in your community. Because I think at this point, most people, if you go off of Twitter, most people are deeply unpracticed in these acts of resistance. Most people do not go to protest. Most people do not engage in consumer boycott. And so I think that they need evidence that they can actually shift things and that there are deep complex moral questions that are associated with any kind of activism and that they're important to engage. I always I always see good in these moments, but I also think that like it's a reminder that under capitalism it's really hard to be morally congruent. Mm-hmm. Mm. Let's leave it there. Seems That's like a good place way. to end. <laughs> 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 wah, wah. A good moral of the story. <laughs> Listeners, if you've boycotted SoulCycle or Equinox, uh, I would love to hear about it. Or uh, if you know anybody who has, please email us at thewaves at slate.com. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Our next topic is Couples Therapy, a new series on Showtime. It premiered last Friday. All nine episodes are available now. June, you've been dying to talk about this. Oh, my God. Tell us about it. Oh, I... (laughs) I I went through such a journey with this show. So just to describe it a little bit, although it really is pretty much what it says on the tin, it follows four couples as they work through their issues with a psychotherapist slash psychoanalyst called Dr. Orna Goralnik. Um, It was directed by Josh Kriegman and Elise Steinberg, who also made the movie Wiener, uh, which we talked about on The Wave some years ago, was the fly on the wall documentary about Anthony Wiener. Um, And I went into this show without much enthusiasm because it felt like it was going to be this huge um, like breach of privacy. Like there are some things that should be private or it shouldn't be public, I guess, even more to the point. And therapy felt like one of those things. And then I started watching it and then I was like, yeah, that's right. But never mind, because I'm loving it. Um, <laughs> the four couples are pretty different. Um, Sarah and Lauren are a couple. Lauren is trans and they're working through some issues around having a child. One of them wants one, the other's not so sure. And an uneven distribution of housework. Um, They're white. And then Elaine and Deshaun are another couple. Elaine is Puerto Rican. Deshaun is black. And I guess I describe their presenting problem as her feeling he's too passive and his thinking she's too demanding. Alan and Evelyn are also people of color. I guess Latinx, although I'm not sure. Um, And one of the reasons that I'm not sure is that we don't get a lot of information about them. I think we're put in the position of Dr. Goralnik where we just have to figure things out. But of course, we don't see everything. We only see these nine half hour episodes, which have to tell four stories. And so Alan and Evelyn are kind of working through issues of trust and they're the closest to breaking up, I think you could say. And then there is Annie and Mao, who are (sighs) white, I, I think. And Mao brought up feelings that I do not feel good about. Um, he came across <laughs> as an asshole, but he actually kind of seems like he's okay with that. Um, and I actually also felt bad about responding that way because there's this guy who's being apparently open and honest. And shouldn't I be like Dr. Goralnik and not judge him? But I couldn't because I'm a human. Um, those guys have been married 23 years, and I truly believe that Annie deserves a medal. Let's hear a little bit of the interaction between Dr. Goralnik and I think just we just hear from Mao, but Mao and Annie. I'm just wondering if you're aware of how quickly you move to devaluation. Do you know that? I, I think that I don't care how quickly I move to devaluation. Whether you care about it or not, I just am want I, to Am I aware that sometimes aware I move quickly to devaluation? Yes. But I'm also noticing um, how difficult it is to actually meet you. I notice even in the way I'm talking to you that it's very hard to get it right. Like when I try to say back to you what's going on, what, what I just heard, mm-hmm. it's never right. And when you correct me, I can see why you're correcting me. Mm-hmm. I understand the nuance and where I miss the point. Mm-hmm. That's very frustrating for me. So I, I became completely obsessed with this show. Now, my partner was a therapist. She stopped practicing before we met, so it's been 20 years since she practiced or more. But it kind of brought up, it led to some really good conversations about therapy and the purpose of therapy or like about emotions. What is anger after all? Um, (laughs) And it like, I just wanted more of these people. I wanted to know more about them. I wanted to help solve things. And at the same time, like I'm kind of like they're in New York. I know, for example, that Lauren rides the three train because we see a little bit of the, <laughs> of the scenes. And I'm like, I'm really kind of worried about running into because like I feel close to her and I want to ask about like, how are things going with Sarah? What's happening with the pregnancy? How are you feeling? Like, and yet like I can't because it was secret and that feels really weird. Did y'all like it? I went to this show completely unknowledgeable about what it was. And I thought it was going to be a reality show. And I do not like reality shows unless they are like 
home buying and home decorating <laughs> things. Like I, I, <laughs> I don't like seeing those kinds of reality shows where friends are backstabbing and it's cut in such a way that mm-hmm. couples are constantly fighting and bickering and all this kind of stuff. That's what I thought this was going to be. And like June, I quickly became enamored, just enthralled with the show. And I binged all nine episodes. Um, and I do feel like Evelyn and Alan... So they're the ones who are closest to breaking up. Yes. And they've been married six years. And um, they have been in therapy for three months. And I did feel like Evelyn and Alan were the weakest of the couples as far as like we didn't really have much substance to what led them to meeting with Dr. Orna. And I, I was concerned that we did get a lot about race and ethnicity with Deshaun and Elaine, but Evelyn and Alan, who seemed to be an interracial couple, we didn't really see much because Alan's father did not give his blessing for the wedding. And that really affected the way Alan came into the wedding. And I thought that we could have seen more mm-hmm. of that. And I would have yeah, liked like, to. Why ex- didn't he give his yeah. blessing? It's yeah. weird that we don't know. Yeah, and I, I, I would have wanted to see more of that. So I found it strange that this couple that seemed the closest to breaking up, we don't get much mm-hmm. from. Annie and Mal, wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at first I was definitely like, Mal is an asshole. He is awful. But then once we learned more about the fact that he left home at 15 and that he was in this... Um, inappropriate relationship with an older woman and that he dropped out of school in the ninth grade. So he is a self-made man. So I was like, okay, this is part of why he needs to control so much. And then he's just like, it's my way or no way because I've made it this far on my own. This is how it's going to be. And I was like, he's terrible. And then I felt empathy for him because as Annie began to be like, I'm going to go, I'm going to leave. You could see he was, just crestfallen he was as much as he could show I I know he loves her and he does not want to be without her right and he just does not know how to bend for her and so he I, I feel like he sees this mistake that he has made over and over for the last 23 years finally breaking her and he's just like I don't know what to do because I can't bend I have a little actually a lot less sympathy for him than you do, I think, Nicole. I mean, I think it's important to take into context the traumas or life experiences that sometimes undergird the way people react with their partners. And in fact, I thought one of the most profound moments of the show for me was when Orna's talking to her therapist or her Mm -hmm. clinical advisor and says, you know, it's almost unfair what we expect relationships to do for us. Like Mm -hmm. we expect them to make up for any sort of neglect we experienced. And then if our partners can't deliver that, we wonder, you know, are, am I unlovable or are they unworthy? It's almost like, you know, we expect too much. That said, I think if what this show has taught me is if you come into any sort of conflict with a partner and sort of refuse to acknowledge or accept that you might have to change because you're making your partner feel a certain way, even if it's not your intention, even Mm -hmm. if you don't think you're doing anything wrong, but if you're not willing to sort of meet them halfway because they're feeling that way, I don't think you can say you truly care about them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought it was interesting that all three of the heterosexual couples had a dynamic where the man thought the woman was expecting too much and that he was, you know, an amazing partner 99% of the time. And if he wasn't a good partner, the other 1% and she complained about it, who is she to complain about it? I love that Orna sort of mentions that when she talks about, when she's talking to her advisor about Annie and Mao, where she says, she's basically like, is feminism compatible with honest couples therapy <laughs> or or like, you know, in order to help this couple, you know, she's worried that they're going to drop out because they have done that with several other couples therapists. And she's like, in order to keep him engaged, I basically have to sacrifice her mm-hmm. and sort of take him seriously when maybe he doesn't deserve to be taken seriously or mm-hmm. I can't be too aggressive with him because then he'll just disengage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, it, it, also gave me a lot to think about in terms of the gender dynamics that the couples therapist has to deal with. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, 
it, just to keep the two people on the same page. This show really got me where I lived. I'm married to a therapist. <laughs> oh. I have been in a lot of therapy. And honestly, like if I'm being very honest about what I saw on this show, I have been every single one of these people. Like <laughs> even as like disgusting as Mao is like is is formed, I have been a version of him, not full, but, you know, <laughs> just of, of, of being incredibly selfish or self-centered mm-hmm. and not understanding why people can't, you know, revolve. I mean, I think I've been all of these people. And the thing I liked about this show, and I think what makes it so compelling is it's the closest thing to what therapy is actually like. Mm-hmm. Because I know people, um, you know, once a camera is there, it fundamentally changes the exchange. But I think that they did a really good job of showing that even when a person is being watched, at the end of the day, you will default to your bullshit in your relationship, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like, I'm a big believer that couples should pretend to be happy in front of other people as to not make them (laughs) uncomfortable if that says anything about my pathologies. But it will always leak, right? It was Now, other people might not notice, but the leaking always happens. And so I thought it was pretty incredible that this is people doing their best impression management because they know they'll be on television Mm -hmm. and it Mm -hmm. still leaks out. And so Mm -hmm. one of the things I really liked about this show was that it was not only an honest accounting of therapy, but when Dr. Gorelick is talking to her clinical advisor, I think very few people realize that therapists need that kind of support. And the ways that they talk about their cases also enhances the ability for the therapist to be present in the middle of the types of conflicts that Christina was talking about. And so I just really adored what was happening on the show because I think one of the reasons why a lot of people are resistant to therapy is because the representations in popular culture are so wildly inappropriate. Mm -hmm. It's like the day one, the therapist is like, so tell me about your family and how they've traumatized you. It's like Mm -hmm. a good therapist usually warms up to that point. Or, I mean, the trope of therapists sleeping with their clients, which is unethical. You're not supposed to be doing that. And there's ways of managing, you know, a client's attraction to a therapist. Like there's all of these really good ethical people who are practicing that I think so much of popular culture is about boundary violations Mm -hmm. that some people go to therapy seeking that. And Mm -hmm. she was just such a talented clinician from Mm -hmm. my perspective. She was Mm -hmm. so good with these people. And she was also so transparent about how they do affect her. And I think that there's a healthy way in which that can happen. And I loved all those dimensions coming out in the show. But, you know, it makes me worried now because we were absent that, you know, the, the realities of life. We're like, you have to find a way to pay for this. It's really hard to find a therapist in, in your network who's seeing patients, blah, blah, blah. We all know that there are these problems and that maybe your insurance won't cover it if you even have insurance, blah, blah, blah. Like getting that whole aspect of it just disappeared because it's funny in the show they do not tell you anything about what they're doing mm-hmm, um, yeah. you know we read some things that kind of explained a little bit about like they recruited these couples uh, presumably they didn't have to pay for their sessions but I think so many people who see this will want therapy because it really does show how effective it can be and how it can really reveal the stuff that you need to work on in a way that you can't figure out by yourself and yet, you know, you can't yeah. actually get it. Uh, I want to talk about um, Sarah and Lauren um, because they were the most frustrating couple for me because mm-hmm. I feel like Sarah resents the fact that Lauren is trans. Sarah, um, that's so interesting. So there was a, a discussion about their um, sexual incompa- incompatibility. Sarah said that, uh, you know, she goes through phases where she wants it all the time and then Lauren is not very responsive to that and so um, Dr. Orna you know pulled it out of Lauren that Lauren when um, she had her gender confirmation surgery there were some serious complications that caused some pain for her during sex sometimes and, and she describes it as like like glass like it's yes. very sharp intense pain it's yes. not just a little discomfort and Sarah is looking at her like oh yeah right not like I forgot, but like, huh, you know, and she said, well, we worked around that. But she's still holding it against uh, Lauren a little bit because Lauren is like, I have shame when about these complications. That's very heavy. Mm-hmm. And if your mm-hmm. partner has uh, um, any kind of sexual shame and you're just like, why don't you want to have sex with me more often? 
I just think that that's so uncaring. And then when they started talking about trying to get pregnant, Sarah would be the one to carry the child. And Sarah, she eventually does say, you know, I, uh, I have this quiet rage that we cannot do this in a heteronormative way where it's just like, oops, oh, well, look, I'm pregnant. Hee hee. And you just go about it. She's like, I resent this, the intentionality of what we have to do. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, oh. I don't know that that's resenting her for being trans, though. I mean, I know a lot of people who are trying to get pregnant right now who are in relationships with like two women or whatever and I think it's completely normal to to watch all of these heterosexual couples around you literally just having sex and getting pregnant and to realize that you have to be so intentional about it it's so expensive they make you go through therapy not that that's a bad thing but like you're forced to (laughs) go through therapy every step of the way you're confronted with uh, sheets of paper that say like who's the husband and who's the wife like there's so many insulting parts of that process that I don't think that's weird at all right but Sarah also was like she was talking about how she felt about what the baby would potentially do to her body and like the surgery to get pregnant and all this kind of stuff and she just like well it's not your body how would you feel if it was your body and Lorna's like well I've had several surgeries. I've had I've gone through some very invasive procedures. And again, Sarah's looking at her like, oh, I don't know the ages of this couple. Um, At one point, Dr. Orna says, you know, you're young and impulsive. And I was kind of taken aback because, quite frankly, they don't look very young to me. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't know their ages. And so I'm just I found myself thinking of Sarah as a petulant child. And I don't know how accurate that is. And I don't whatever. But I felt like she was just not very, I don't know, aware that Lauren's womanhood is different from her womanhood. Well, hmm. this though brings up a thing that I think is is the part that I said, you know, it, it brought up some feelings that I wasn't proud of or happy with or just like felt weird which is judging these people Mm because I think what you're doing like you're having a response to them as people that you've met via this TV Mm -hmm. show you don't actually know them you only have heard the bit of the therapy that the show showed us Mm -hmm. you know there were many other hours I'm sure and we don't have context there's a lot that's withheld from us and like I felt I didn't I mean I noticed that but I, I didn't necessarily have that exact response but like I had feelings about um, Deshaun and Elaine. Yes. Like, Elaine, uh, like, I, a white woman, are, like, dis- are thinking to myself, because, of course, I'm not actually confronting Elaine, but I'm, like, yelling at the TV, <laughs> Elaine, you're being super racist. No, re- Elaine is a woman of color, and who am I to be yelling at this? But, mm, like, she, yeah. I'm having this feeling, which I can't deny, but is not necessarily appropriate, about Elaine not understanding that her husband who is black when she, you know she's not white but she she identifies as Puerto Rican that when she wants to, to go to a fancy restaurant he feels bad and he feels mistreated mm-hmm. and I'm like up in arms about that yeah. but like is maybe that's not for me like it's just hard to know what to do with your feelings that come up but like, and there are so many layers to a Puerto Rican identity and yeah. Afro-Latinx uh, identity. And that's something that uh, the therapist did not feel qualified to get into from what we saw. Right. You know, and she acknowledged her whiteness. Yeah. yeah. But she because she was like, well, I'm white ish. So I'm you know, <laughs> and I'm not sure what yeah. uh, her ethnicity is. But I also was very upset with Elaine that she was so dismissive of the fact that Deshaun is clearly at least six foot three, right? Mm -hmm. Um, He is a very tall, very... I don't, he's not large, Solid. but he's, yeah. you know, he takes up some space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he is also a dark-skinned black man. Yeah. So... He's telling her, when I go to these places that you want to go to, I am mistreated. I am. I don't want to give these people my money. I want to go someplace where I can feel comfortable and relax. And she's just like, well, I'm not going to a dive bar. And, you know, so it's yeah. like the way he's been mistreated, the, the racial injustices that he suffered do not compare to the fact that she just wants a really nice steak. I saw uh, one of my good friends in Elaine because Elaine was so controlling. And I noticed between Elaine and Mal, both of them had um, very disruptive childhoods Mm -hmm. and their responses to that is to control everything. And it, it pushed the loved ones away. And I did see that Elaine was trying to saw that finally, and she was working through that. And, you know, uh, hopefully she continues to work on that, but I saw one of my really good friends in the lane, and I, it helped me understand a little bit more about my friend as well. Mm-hmm. 
I'll return to my earlier point. I am all these people and they are me. <laughs> and I think that there is a, there's a kind of grace that happens through the course of the show that it isn't that you don't you, you don't judge less as a result of seeing all mm-hmm. nine episodes. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, if you've spent any time in therapy, like you start to get a mirror of what you sound like to your therapist Hmm. and you have a new appreciation for all your bullshit that you're bringing into the room. Because one of the things that I thought was really interesting in all of the couples, everyone had these kind of unfinished sentences that they felt like were the common sense and logic of their lives, right? And so whether it's – and. So I want to get pregnant immediately because, you know, and then the therapist is like, um, so let me understand. It's like so that I could be treasured and valued. And you're like, whoa, you know, it's like, oh, you know. And so I think that yeah. there's something about this that, um, you know, they do this thing in the show where they do these interstitial shots of the couples kind of like palling around and I'm like no why are we stopping more therapy more therapy but you need it you as a viewer need a second to understand that a relationship as it exists in couples therapy is not the whole of the relationship Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that the awful human being that I can be in a therapist office it's like I do really sweet things also at home and I have to Sometimes when you're in these very intensive processes, especially with your partner, you have to remind yourself that you are something other than like the awful person who shows up in therapy. And so mm-hmm. I think the the quality of the conversation that can come out of a show like this, I'm really excited to read more about, you know, how people are perceiving the experience. Yeah, this is also, I think, how it differs from normal, whatever, quote unquote, reality TV, which the show takes really great pains to separate itself from. Mm-hmm. Like on the show page, it says, far from reality show caricature, <laughs> this is true documentary filmmaking. But it did kind of strike me as like a glossier version of those confessional rooms that you mm-hmm. see on reality TV. And what I wanted more of were those shots from home, actually, because I, I like, wanted hidden cameras in their houses to see what they're talking about, see how these things play out, because sometimes the conversations in the therapy room were so abstract, which is, to me, the least interesting part about a, a watching someone's relationship is watching them talk about the relationship. But then I was like, do I just want – should I watch Big Brother? You know, <laughs> but, like, the, it, it would be different, obviously, because these people are really invested in their relationships. But what you're talking about, Marsha, like, the, the worst – like bringing your worst self sometimes into the therapist's office because you have the freedom to do that and that's where you're supposed to be working that out. That's sort of the only thing that exists on regular reality TV mm, shows interesting. is like the very worst that people can mm. be. And so I wanted to see more of like, why are these two people together? Like Evelyn and Alan, well, like why are they together? They don't seem like they are even like each other very much. Well, I thought it was interesting when they had those shots of their weddings and everyone's yeah. wedding, if it's photographed, has that moment where you, you don't look happy for whatever reason, right? <laughs> like it could just be too hot or you're like, I'm super bloated and I'm in this dress. I can speak for myself. And so, you know, there's always that picture of you being like, oh, and they caught those for every couple, that moment where they look exasperated. And I think um, to your point, Christine, I think that's a, you know, that's an excellent way of thinking about like, yes, reality TV is filled with explosion. But one of the things I think is interesting in their sessions each and every one of them, they're talking about these really complex things like the trauma and the betrayals. And then it's like, and then you didn't wipe the counter. And yeah. I swear to God, <laughs> the reason why partnership is the worst, it's because it's like the kitchen renovation and the mm-hmm. laundry yeah. and like cleaning the bathroom. And the only thing that keeps you from <laughs> completely abandoning the project is that there's these moments of like clarity and you're like oh I really know when I'm connected to this person and like what are we going to eat for dinner <laughs> Marsha that reminds me like you know when I was younger and uh, my mom would come home and she'd see that one fork still in the sink and just like <laughs> explode right and then I didn't realize it what was going on until I became an adult and I came home and that one fork was in the sink (laughs) and I was just like why can't anything go right you know and I did and I you know I it did help me watching this I'm I'm not married I the longest relationship I've had was like four years and whatever um so seeing this I felt like was kind of 
prep for me? Should I get to a point where I am either living with someone again or marrying someone Um, and teaching me how to communicate? Mm -hmm. I think that I'm a good communicator, but all these people in therapy also think that they're a good communicator. (laughs) Uh, So I, uh, I really like this show and I hope that a lot of people watch it so that they can see themselves or, or maybe even look back at their past relationships. If their current one, if they feel that their current one is successful in whatever way that means for them. But I, it's a really, it's such a self-reflective kind mm-hmm, of show mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. A, in a way that uh, reality or maybe other documentary kind of series aren't. And I'm, I'm just completely just all oh, in. I'm ready yeah. for the next, exactly. if there's another season, I'm ready for it. That's just the thing I want more already. And even if like, can you just give me some off takes like that you didn't use? I just <laughs> want more. Just the raw I'm not, footage. <laughs> I'm not even done with these people yet, but I, I do want more of Dr. Goralnik. And I'd like to know more about her. And what's even what's her dog's name? I know. <laughs> She's oh, like, give us a little bit. dog. I was so cute. Um, well, clearly we all loved this show in different ways. The next best thing to getting couples therapy is watching other people do couples therapy. And the next best thing to that is listening to people talk about watching people do couples therapy. (laughs) Listeners, have you seen the show? Have you done couples therapy? And and does it match up with what you've seen on the show? Um, Send us an email. You can reach us at thewaves@slate.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. All right. Our last topic for today, Marianne Williamson. Taffy Brodesser Ackner, a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine, published a new profile of her and her presidential campaign last week. So the thrust of the profile seems to be to take seriously the self-helpiness of Williamson and the people who love her, uh, which is very much in line with some of Taffy's other work. Um, She did a profile of Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop, which the thrust of that was sort of to take seriously the self-helpiness of Goop and the people who love it. Um, Williamson is an author and a spiritual leader, if you haven't been following the Democratic presidential race. Uh, she's sort of been part comic relief, part meme generator, part, for some people, truth teller in this race. Um, so in the profile, Taffy unpacks what Williamson is doing, what her message is, why some people are drawn to her. I mean, Marianne Williamson was a pseudo-celebrity in her own right before she joined the presidential race. She's been a spiritual consultant for Oprah, um, author of a couple highly, you know, well-selling books. I don't want to say best-selling because I don't know what that means. But um, so Marianne Williamson has not qualified for the third debate, which is happening the day this episode drops. But she has made, I would say, a disproportionate splash considering how low she has consistently polled. To be honest, I was expecting more from the profile. I didn't really get a ton of new information about it. And I, I think I realized that I find these angles sort of annoying um, or annoyingly unsurprising in their efforts to be surprising by explaining, you know, you shouldn't scoff at at this person or dismiss this idea that's very easy to scoff at or dismiss. Um, I thought there were a lot of straw men in the profile. I, I, I may have been too sensitive because I write about politics a lot. And also I am angry that Marianne Williamson is taking up time in this presidential race. But considering that the profile seemed to be trying to flesh out and and dismantle the straw man that people have made of Williamson, I thought there were too many straw men in the profile. Like Taffy points out that no one has been making these sort of 
woo-woo uh, memes of Cory Booker, who's a vegan and he likes inspirational quotes. Mm. Well, meanwhile, Cory Booker has, you know, a, a very long <laughs> history in politics and like actually has some political experience. And there's a reason why he's in the race. Whereas I think I still have the question of why does Williamson feel that politics is her way to have a larger impact on people rather than just getting a talk radio show or a TV show or something. Um, you know, I, I don't think the fact that people are treating Cory Booker more seriously than Marianne Williamson is evidence of some kind of unfair discrimination on the part of the voter or political journalists. Um, and Taffy doesn't take seriously, even once, I don't think, the actual concerns that actual people have about Williamson if they care about politics, like the fact that in the last debate, she, you know, moments after the debate ended, she sort of took back everything she said about Medicare for all, where in the debate she was like, oh, I don't know about it. And then afterwards, she told um, a, a journalist, you know, I felt dirty. I felt like I had to say that. That's not actually how I feel. Um, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren really convinced me during the debate. Now I'm on their side. Like, that's not the person that I want leading healthcare policy debate in our country or for the Democratic Party. So I felt that, like the profile kind of glossed over all the real objections to argue that, you know, Williamson does have something valuable to say, and it's just hard for her to say it because we're, we will hastily dismiss these candidates who look different or sound different. Um, I, I, it just didn't ring true to me as a person who, like, closely follows politics. What, what did yeah. you guys think? Yeah, I felt that the profile was a little empty or um, shallow, I should say. Uh, and I I wanted more about Marianne Williamson to figure out why is she here? Like, I just felt like it was just kind of like she felt a calling. Um, and I wondered, well, why can't you be a spiritual advisor on someone else's campaign? Or why can't you um, develop a, I don't know, some kind of website where you're like, um, if you're exhausted by what's going on, I can help you get through that. You know, like that kind of thing, which maybe she doesn't want to be a charlatan, I, which is commendable. But it's I feel like there's other ways that Marianne Williamson can um, contribute to helping people navigate the political discourse right now because so many people are turning to spirituality in whatever forms they feel comfortable with. There are so many people who are now reading tarot cards and, and the, the co-star apps, uh, you know, astrology apps and all this kind of stuff where people are just looking to the stars and their chakras and all this kind of stuff. And I'm not downplaying it because I do the same thing. Like I light my candles at home and I've got my crystals on the windowsill. And, Which you know, Marianne Williamson, <laughs> one of my favorite parts of the profile was that yes. she came out and said, like, can you all stop talking about crystals? I don't use crystals. Like, I'm not that kind of a guru. Yeah, but I'm just, I just want, I wanted more substance to Marianne. And I feel like I didn't get this. And I felt disappointed because I see so many people lauding um, Taffy as this incredible profiler. And she is. And I just did not see that here. And I don't know if it's just her own lack of comfort in discussing politics or, or you know, mm -hmm. whatever. Um, or if it was just there was a lot of Taffy in this profile. Yeah, yeah, and I'm yeah. like, I don't want to know about you. I want to yeah. know about Marianne. Yeah. I'm very conflicted about this because I mean, I agree with you completely, Christina. First of all, no one should be making their first political race as president. Like, that should not be a thing. Clearly, there's a little bit of I think she did run for... Oh, that's right. She ran for governor. She ran for, um, for a seat. The Democratic when, for nomination. Henry Waxman's for... Yeah, she ran yeah. for Henry Waxman's seat. That's right. But still... Yeah, still. You know, she has no political background beyond running for a seat. Um, yeah. And, I, I, you know, there's an immense arrogance in, in taking up time on a debate stage in a year like this. like, And it's not just her, all of those candidates, some of whom right. had been um, you know, members of Congress. I'm still like, can you shut up, get <laughs> off the stage, leave it to the people who count? And because, you know, for whatever, whatever, I, you know, I can tell you who should be up there and you and you and you should not be among them. So like, that's the thing. But at the same time, I and I and I agree with you both too about the sort of the thinness of this particular profile. However, I do kind of hear there is. I understand why she was trying to get at the ineffable. I think the F still eluded her. <laughs> People are not getting what they need from politics. They're not getting what they need from life, and there it's not. It's a real desire to to find what they're looking for. For me, it's bullshit. But it is such a strong 
desire and a strong need from these people that I, I know that I can't just write it off. I want to understand why Marianne Williamson is appealing to even some people. And I think, Christina, your piece that you wrote about the kind of Marianne Williamson's history with gay supporters was mm-hmm. really revealing in this sense. But like what? I want to understand that desire more so that it, so that we can fill that need in a more appropriate way because I see that need, but then I don't feel like what she's offering is the answer for our nation and certainly not for our president. So I... Um, you know, read this profile. And I I think what was happening was that there was this person who was being caricatured endlessly. Mm. And I think that this profile was an opportunity to intervene in some of the ways that um, Williamson is being written off. And I think that's important. But I will say this, um, the the line from the article that I think most resonated with the points that you're making, June, about people looking for something, is she writes, this this entire country, she realized, was like an alcoholic family system in which the children just know something terrible is going on. <laughs> like, that mm-hmm. facts. Like, mm-hmm. there is no lies detected in that, in that statement. And so I think that what happens is the kind of emptiness that people are feeling as a result of for ex- for example, living under capitalism, <laughs> um, you know, feeling like there's no safety net, feeling like you're isolated for whichever reasons, that gets projected onto politics. Mm-hmm. And so whether you need to vote for the mean dad because that's the dad that you're comfortable with or you want the new age mom because you think that, you know, she will help you realize things about yourself. Like I think the kind of projection that's happening in every political cycle, but this particular one is something that she – is exploring here. And you can see her as the writer inserting herself as saying, like, I kind of get it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. With that being said, I think um, this writer from Slate, Christina Catarucci, I don't know if you've heard of her. I don't know her. Um, (laughs) Her piece about Williamson and her, you know, her relationship to the LGBTQ community, I think, does that also is saying, like, this is a person who put herself in the middle of the AIDS crisis in a very distinct way. And now she that forgetting about who she was in that past is is coming, you know, to a head as people are like, wait a second, is she really aligned with the best interests of our community or not? Mm -hmm. And I think it's also a story about how much we just forget about how people like Williamson and through the Oprah show really monetized a type of spirituality that we see has really changed the marketplace. Um, I think that a lot of the support that she is getting from a lot of gay men particularly is erasing the history of the AIDS crisis. And so I think that she has been this kind of um, platform to work out some really complicated issues. The problem is like, maybe that's not what we should be doing in our politics. Yeah, exactly. Maybe mm-hmm. our politics should mm-hmm. be about governing and then our unmet needs can be met in other places. And so, mm-hmm. I, and I don't make this comparison lightly, but I, often think it's compelling. Um, If you read a lot about Jonestown, like I do, and watch all the documentaries and bring it up in inappropriate moments, (laughs) the thing about Jonestown that I thought was so fascinating is that when the People's Temple started, especially when it moved to San Francisco, a lot of the people in it were black people Mm -hmm. who said that the temple was the first time they didn't experience racism. Mm -hmm. Like that is mind-blowing to me Mm -hmm. that it's in these kind of hyper... um, controlled environments that are supposed to be about eradicating racism that people feel really drawn around these kind of characters. And so there's something about when Williamson talks about racial forgiveness and talks about kind of healing, I see why people could get sucked into it because where else in the culture are we seeing people committed to that? And this is where some of my discomfort comes from, not only with her presence, but what it says about deep absences in our society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it's it made me feel a lot more interested in the the people who support her and why. I, I think that is far more interesting than you know who she is or why she's in the race because, I, like personally, it's it's not really a question for me. I think you know she saw this as a way to like sell more books. Maybe maybe she really does feel a calling to be a spiritual leader. I believe that you know, and and this is a good way to reach people. But I think it, it's there's something very cynical about her deciding she needed to do that through trying to hijack the presidential race. Um, but but it is very interesting 
to hear, you know, there was a, a very short part of the profile where Taffy says she heard none of Williamson's supporters ask about her political proposals or ideas. Mm-hmm. They just wanted self-help. So yeah. it was all about like, how do I heal from this? How do I deal with Trump? How can I move past this? Um, and so I think the piece that I want to read, or maybe the question I would be more interested in exploring is, why do so many people on the left, as well as the right, think of a president as just a person who maybe gives nice speeches, it makes us feel good with the way they talk, essentially a TV star, not a leader <laughs> of policy? Like, why, why do so many people feel like unsatisfied with keeping spiritual leaders in the spiritual leadership realm? And and why do we need to put that in politics, too, and replace a president with somebody like that? Yeah. It's so Freudian. (laughs) (laughs) Send it to Dr. Goralnik, please. Listeners, if you read the profile, we'd love to hear what you think. It's called The Gospel According to Marianne Williamson by Taffy Brodeser-Ackner. You can email us at thewaves@slate.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Time for recommendations. Who's got a good one? Well, I actually have just changed my recommendation. I will mention what I was going to recommend. I was going to recommend the Guardian Politics live blog, especially by Andrew Sparrow. If a lot of people are asking me questions about the bonkersness of British politics right now, and um, that really is the best place to to find out what's going on at any single minute. But Marsha's just mentioning of Jonestown, which is also something that fascinates me, just reminded me of a book of poetry that has been unfairly forgotten that more people should look at. Uh, and it's by Pat Parker. It's called Jonestown, Another Madness. Um, she too Marsha's nodding enthusiastically. Is, is yes. Reflecting on, you know, how the presence of black people in Jonestown, what that meant, etc., uh, etc., et and what what really happened. Uh, but anyway, I won't get too far into that. And, and just a, a fantastic um, black lesbian poet of the 80s. Uh, so Jonestown, Another Madness by Pat Parker. Wow, a spur of the moment recommendation. Mm. So rare, <laughs> a rare treat. Who else? Uh, well, to continue the theme of therapy and madness, um, <laughs> I would like to recommend a new podcast called Mad Chat. Um, and it is a podcast that um, looks at the way pop culture talks about mental health and mental illness. So um, and full disclosure, I was recently a guest on the show. Yeah. <laughs> toot toot. Um, <laughs> and I talked about Frasier, which is my favorite TV show of all time. Wow. I love <laughs> Frasier so much. Um, and the host is Sandy Allen, who wrote a book called A Kind of Miraculous Paradise, A True Story About Schizophrenia, which was published last year in 2018. And they look with different guests. They look at um, BoJack Horseman, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Killing Eve, things yeah. like that. It comes out every third Thursday, so once a month. Um, and it's really good, you know, just looking at the way that we talk about mental health, mental illness. There's a thread where we look at why we should not use the term crazy at the way that we do. And, and, you know, looking at the ableist language that we use around intellectual disorders and mental health and things like that. So it's really good. So it's called Mad Chat. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> I'm going to recommend a New York Times piece that was published a couple weeks ago. Uh, It's called Why Doesn't Anyone Want to Live in This Perfect Place? It's by Rena Raphael with gorgeous photographs by Libby March. It's about uh, women's lands, lesbian separatist spaces, and uh, the challenges that they've faced since their founding uh, several decades ago um, in attracting younger women to come spend time on the land, steward the land, maybe maybe take ownership of the lands um, now that there are other ways to meet lesbians and feel safe in public. Um, and, you know, there's also a new economy of travel, making it sometimes harder for people to find these places. And so the piece sort of talks about uh, how 
women who live in these places or spend time there or are part owners of these lands are um, personally dealing with the changes, sometimes making changes to their actual spaces, registering them on um, Instagram or uh, online camping directories, um, but also in some ways accepting the fact that the spaces might eventually cease to exist and, and coming to terms with that. And I think there's some of the women feel a little bit of resentment about that. Some of them think it's a, a evidence of a, a positive arc in the way society has changed. It, it sort of briefly touches on the fact that there's in, in some places a diminishing population of people who even identify as lesbians or want to spend time in lesbian identified spaces. It was a really, really good piece. The photos are incredible. That was one of my favorite parts of reading it. I highly recommend it. It's called Why Doesn't Anyone Want to Live in This Perfect Place? Marsha, what do you have? And my recommendation um, is a new podcast that I may have been a guest on recently called (laughs) Historians on Housewives, where Bravo reality TV meets history, which is the intersection of my life. There's a podcast for everything. It's hosted by um, historians Jessica Millward, uh, Max Spear, and Casey Callahan. And it is one of the most thoughtful analyses of Bravo TV housewives, as well as your other properties, your Southern charm, your below deck. Um, But what I like about it is I think it's a really wonderful illustration about how everything has a history and that there's no such thing, I think, as bad television. I think there's just bad analysis. And so fortunately, um, this podcast, Historians on Housewives, where Bravo reality TV meets history, um, can teach you a lot about television as well as history. So much good stuff to listen to coming out of this episode. Uh, That's our show for today. Thank you to Sarah Burningham, who produced this episode, and Rosemary Belson and Cleo Levin, who provided production assistance. For Marsha Chatlin, Nicole Perkins, and June Thomas, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks for listening. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.